Zuckerberg talked from the beginning about um, you know newsfeed being essentially a personalized newspaper, and um, and, and and thought of it that way. Um, but the question of what the mix that goes into that when you have all of these different sources is a hard one. Hello and welcome to the Message Makeover Podcast. I'm Dean Brenner from the Latimer Group. And I'm Dan Cooney from the Cooney Company. Hey, Dan. How you doing? How you doing? I'm doing great, Dean. How are you? I'm doing great. Really excited for this conversation today, but also just sort of excited that we're living in a world that feels maybe a little calmer than it did even a couple of weeks ago. Is that is that my imagination or does that feel real to you? Let me check. I I can't think of any insurrections this past week or geez, no, no, I think you're right. Might be going in the in a better direction. This is good. Yeah, yeah. Well we'll, we'll keep it apolitical here, but uh but right, but it certainly feels certainly feels a little calmer. And you know, I'm I'm knowing more and more people that are getting vaccinated. Uh, it yeah. feels like we're starting to see some light at the end of that tunnel. And for the first time in a while, it probably isn't an oncoming train. Yeah. Boy, do we need that. We need the calm and we need uh, a place to uh, regroup and uh, get ready to advance into. I got a great friend from an old campaign who used to say, endure, maintain and prevail. And so we've been enduring for a long time here. Yes, and we've been maintaining for a long time, and now we we all feel like we need to get out and pr- start to prevail. Absolutely, and I'll tell you, we'll table this for a future conversation. But for the first time in the last two weeks, we've actually had a couple of clients ask us what our policy is going to be on resuming in-person training. I love it, and we are nowhere close to being there, and and we we have to work out a lot of details. But it's interesting to me that the conversations are happening for the, we're getting inquiries. Yep. Which nobody positive. even mentioned. Yeah. It's really positive. And we need to get back to that point. We need to get out and connect with people. We need yeah. to gather. We need to be together um, yeah. so we can get to that point where we, we are prevailing again. Totally. Well, and, and, and you know, we're going to have a great conversation today with a really interesting guest and, 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 and the concepts of connecting with people is going to come up in a lot of different ways with our guest today. Really excited for this conversation. So let's let's uh, let's introduce our guest here and get going. Okay, Deb? Sounds great. Today we are honored to be joined by the multifaceted Chris Kelly. Where to start with Chris? Currently, he's a co-owner of the Sacramento Kings of the NBA since 2013. Previously, Chris served as Facebook's chief privacy officer and head of global public policy, among many other roles at the company. And in 2010, Chris ran as a Democratic candidate for attorney general in the state of California, losing to the eventual winner, now Vice President Kamala Harris. All of these experiences have made Chris a widely known and well-respected expert on corporate strategy, intellectual property, and privacy and data protection. He's a frequent guest on CNBC, speaking on a range of business, government, tech, and privacy issues. Chris received his BA from Georgetown University in 1991, where we were classmates and friends, and then a JD from Harvard and an MA in political science from Yale. Chris, it is our distinct pleasure to welcome you to the Message Makeover podcast. Thanks so much, Dean. Um, excited to be here. Yeah, we're, we're really excited to have you, Chris. Uh, this is Dan, and uh, you know, it's been a couple of years since we've been doing this podcast, and finally Dean's you know, rolling out his famous friend, so I'm just really <laughs> appreciative of you uh, coming on. Well, always, always glad to join in here. And it's nice to meet you, Dan. Nice. 
Nice to meet you. All right. So let's get to it, Chris. You're a busy guy. So last time you and I spent any significant time together was way back in, in, in 1991. I'm dating us both. And, you know, since then, just looking at your, at your history since then, Facebook, candidate for attorney general in the state of California, professional team, sports owner. This is quite a path that you've been on since we left school. And I'm just curious, you know, if, if somebody in May of 91 had given you that future, if you'd had a crystal ball and somebody said, Chris, this is what life is going to look like for you. Like, because there's so many interesting things there. What would, would you have been surprised at this path and, and what part of it would have been like most shocking to you? Well, I mean, I've, I certainly am pretty happy about it. Um, and as a as a sports fan, my entire life, I think that every every serious sports fan um, dreams about being a team owner. And that would have been the thing that that I I thought would be the hardest to come to pass. Um, you know, after I graduated with you, um, you know, I started a PhD mm -hmm. program in political theory, which was sort of a weird path. And I decided that that was a mistake pretty fast. And I dropped out to move back to Washington and work for um, uh, then Governor Clinton uh, as he ran for president. And so that was something that I'd always wanted to do and, and, and sort of put me on a good path in, in politics in, in some ways. Um, having grown up in Silicon Valley, I knew I was gonna come back here and I knew that there were a lot of things that were changing the world out here. Um, uh, but after, you know, I kind of got, got to really try my hand seriously at, at, at politics and I'd work on Capitol Hill when I was in school um, with you. Mm -hmm. and, and um, you know, and, and got to do it at, at, at the higher level when when President Clinton won the race, and um, and that was an amazing experience. But I I, I needed to you know sort of figure out you know, was I going to be a lawyer? Was I going to go back to a PhD program? And I decided that, that was a silly waste of time. So the the law degree would be flexible enough, and and uh, and so yeah. I I left the administration to do that in '94, graduated in '97, and moved back to California. Um, so the the path that it's it's sort of moved. That I've moved through here, I, I figured that I would end up representing technology companies, and that was the the, the focus. Um, Facebook came about in a in a in an odd way um, that uh, Sean Parker and I were on an advisory board of a company together, and um, and and he you know invited me over to meet Mark Zuckerberg, and and that was the summer of 2005, and and sort of you know you you kind of have to have a, a lucky event like that. Um, sure. to, to get to the the right company at the right time in the right way, and and that my relationship with Sean had come out of representing digital music companies in the private law firms that I was that I was at, although I had never actually represented Napster directly, um, but I knew I knew Sean pretty well through the digital music space, and um, you know I'm just glad that 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 worked out that way. Wow. So you have wow, to have a couple of lucky breaks here and there, and then the. The the King's um, deal was also a lucky break. Um, that uh, the the action around the Kings was happening where Steve Ballmer um, and the Nordstrom family, mm -hmm. a hedge fund guy in San Francisco, were actually going to buy the team and move them to Seattle. And as a you know dedicated Californian, I thought that was a terrible thing for the city of Sacramento, where I'd spent a lot of time um, in on politics. And and uh, you know, this was in 2013, and so I had done the statewide race already, and you know I I had had. You know, licked my wounds from my defeat uh, by the, mm -hmm. the, the sitting vice president in that race in the Democratic primary, and uh, uh, you know with, had done a bunch of different investments in, in in a number of areas, but this was one that was a little bit you know further afield. And I figured out yeah. how to get plugged into the group. I had a relationship through politics with Kevin Johnson, uh, the former NBA point guard who was then the mayor of Sacramento, 
and uh, we started a conversation and I got hooked up with the right group and we figured it all out. Amazing, amazing path, amazing. Hey, Chris, um, having spent seven years in politics in DC and a little time around the Clinton campaign in 92, uh, the Bill Clinton, Sean Parker line is very straight as far as I can see, you know, from my perspective. So uh, that makes a lot of sense. But uh, following up a little bit on the sports theme, you know, in our lifetime, sports has provided a relative sense of normalcy in extreme times, in wartime, uh, in other uh, extreme times. The fact that we all look forward to a Super Bowl this past weekend feels like a win to me. And I was wondering, as an NBA owner, do you feel professional sports, like what role do you feel they've played and, and have they played a positive role during the health crisis? I, I think it's always a unifier, um, that, that it, it's a way to, to have you know, battle that's not, um, that's not, you know, really, uh, it, it doesn't turn ugly very often the way that it does around politics or, or other things. I mean, even when you're dealing with friends who are, you know, rival team fans, uh, you can rib each other and it doesn't turn into uh, the way, the, the ugliness that a lot of political discussions um, often turn into. And, you know, while we were all kind of confined to our homes in this process, sports being canceled at the beginning was a, was a huge sort of missing factor um, uh, for, totally. I think, I think for everyone. And, and so the, the question of how to get it back as quickly as possible was very high on the agenda for, for us as the NBA and, and certainly for the other leagues too. Um, you know, luckily uh, Adam Silver has done a fantastic job of managing relationships with the players association. Michelle Roberts is a, you know, a deep partner of the league and they were able to quickly come up with the bubble um, in association with Bob Iger and the Disney folks um, to kind of get that mm -hmm. get, get that up and running. And my my lead partner Vivek Ranadive had a had a critical role in in putting that all together um, with the NBA Planning Commission committee. And um, and we were off to the races sort of as quickly as we could be. Yeah, it's it's it's. When, when we were in the early stages of this thing, you know, obviously, like everybody else, having a lot of conversations with spouses or friends about what this all meant and, and how dramatically and how quickly things changed. And I remember having a long conversation with my wife, who's a casual sports fan, but not a huge sports fan. She loves the Red Sox. She's a baseball fan. And, and I remember talking to her probably in, in June, about, and we had a deep conversation about how shocked I was. I'm a huge sports fan. And... I think I knew it was going to be a big deal to lose sports, but I don't think I really estimated or under, you know, I, I underestimated how big a deal it was going to be. And, and, you know, not to say that it's just as important as people dying. We're not, we're not creating. No, no, it's, it's there. definitely not, of course, but it is something but, that, that people, you know, care yeah. a lot about and that, and, and yeah. it's part of their normal routine. And when that's disrupted. It's an escape. Yeah. Yeah. It's an escape. It's an escape. And, and I, I, you know, it was, it was, it's been great to have it back. And kudos to you and the league and all the other leagues for making it happen, because really it's a service to the country. It's a service to the world. And uh, it, it's, you know, I, I speak for many when I say thank you for getting this done. Um, well, we're really uh, excited the, with the way that it's worked out and proud yeah. of the way that the league has handled this and, and our, you know, our, our team operations staff and our folks at Golden One Center in Sacramento um, have just been exceptional. Um, and yeah. you know, I, I've, I've, I have the privilege of, of, of actually having you know, attended a number of games this year now. 
um, and seeing all the work that goes into making sure that things don't go awry at this point mm -hmm. and the red zones and the yellow zones and arenas and the way that that's all um, enforced and, yeah. and just you know, we employ um, you know uh, hundreds of people uh, in uh, in a normal operational circumstance and it's really great to get um, a lot of the arena workers back to work so chris let's 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 switch let's switch topics a little bit a lot of ground we want to cover with you and let's start talking about news and let's start talking about specifically how we consume news today and and Dan and I looked up a couple of stats you know no, no surprise we're all well aware how the decline in, in print news uh, over the last 20 years, 25 years. And it really peaked, as far as our research says, in, in the early 90s, with a significant percentage of, of our country getting their daily news from a newspaper. Today, it's completely flipped. And, you know, three, three X times people now get their news from social media rather than from any, you know, print news source. And, and obviously, that includes a platform that you know a little bit about. Yes. <laughs> uh, what are the implications for this from both a reporting and a consumption of news? This is a hot topic and we're sure you got a lot to say about this, but this this is an entirely new world about how we consume our news and what the sources of that news are. We'd love that, to hear that, your thoughts. That's exactly right. And and you know, and having seen this kind of from from the beginning in in the Facebook operations, I mean, when Facebook when I joined Facebook, it was profiles only. Um, there weren't even photos as part of the site. Um, so we launched photos in in 2006, and that created all sorts of you know interesting challenges. Um, and then the newsfeed launched in 2008, and that was or 2007 rather, and that was um, you know. A, a rethinking of the way that that the the information that was being generated and created on the site was going to be packaged, and I think it was fairly obvious to a number of us that that was going to have serious implications about the way that people got information, and and that that it was going to be much more like, um, you know, a, a local news and friends-based information, um, though it was it was equally obvious that the larger news organizations were going to want to. Um, be where the audience is, and if the audience was there and focused on these feed-based, um, you know, uh, uh, information sources, that they would yeah. need to be there too. And that's been, a, I think, a struggle for the company over time, as the as the you know intervening you know 15 years have have gone by, where uh, figuring out how to tune what might come from traditional media sources. Uh, whether it be you know local television stations, local newspapers, national newspapers, um, and 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 listen to people and the type of information that they're trying to seek in that environment while presenting it to them in a you know in in a in an efficient and and an active fashion. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg talked from the beginning about um, you know newsfeed being essentially a personalized newspaper, and um, and 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 thought of it that way. Um, but the question of what the mix that goes into that when you have all of these different sources is a hard one. And I think that there was obviously a miss, uh, 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 an underestimation of how aggressively people would try to use disinformation and misinformation in those circumstances to manipulate people, um, whether it be for voting or for you know, advertising purposes or for consumption of, you know, of, of, of you know, whatever sort of, um, 
you know, things that they may see as truth that, that are, you know, objectively wacky or, or, or things that are, that are nuanced and, and biased in certain ways. Yeah. And so the, the, a lot of the history of the company for the past 10 years, uh, or, you know, eight or 10 years has been, has been focused on that in particular after the 2016 election and, um, and the, the, the finding that, um, despite, you know, Mark's initial, um, unwillingness to uh, to admit that the platform was was misused, um, a recognition that that was very real and and needed to be addressed more aggressively. Um, we had had discussions about misinformation uh, over the course of the founding of Newsfeed and, and and a number of different areas, but it, it was never the um, it was never as front and center as it probably should have been um, earlier on. And and you know my I, I left to do the attorney general race. Um, effectively in the in the summer of 2009, um, so had been out of the mix for quite some time. But I'm still relatively close with the company and have consulted with them from time to time, formally and informally, um, on a number yeah. of them, and care a lot about the way that the platform um, improves. And they've 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 come up with a a number of you know sort of truly impressive artificial intelligence technologies around identifying extremist content and um, you know. But ones that are imperfect, and as they have turned to more communications-based uh, information with the rise of Messenger yeah. and WhatsApp, and and also you know the 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 you know picture stories that are told by Instagram, um, as opposed to just you know things that may be more textually oriented uh, that you'd see in a in a traditional yeah. Facebook feed um they've had their own their own challenges to meet and now have you know built a, a, an oversight board and funded an oversight mm -hmm. board um to to deal with some of the hardest of those cases and to to get some outside uh pictures on that and they've tried to work a lot more aggressively and with governments around the world around the way that those regulations um on that information can be and should be built um well continuing to adhere as much as possible to the idea that more free speech is better um, rather than you know constraining everyone or or you know or trying to prevent people from saying bad things because sometimes you want to know who's saying the worst things or who's trying to overthrow the government for instance um, in order to in order to enforce the laws and so you know suppressing sure. that speech in all circumstances is is not is not necessarily the the wisest long-term course um even though it may be you know extreme and and um and and you yeah. know offensive um you want to mm -hmm. know who thinking that um and how they might express themselves in order to um make sure that that the laws that protect people um can be enforced as we're finding out in particularly mm -hmm. the capital insurrection right now yeah yeah so Chris, um, first of all, just to think of Facebook without the news feed, to me, it's like it just it shows you how fast things move. Yeah. Because I, you think about Facebook, you think about the news feed, and at least to me, and I was on the platform pretty early. Mm -hmm. So just to, to think that that was something that you know came in, post profiles, then photos, then the news feed is it, pretty incredible because just um, time time moves very quickly, and. You know, I'm thinking about the idea of like, how should the platform think about the responsibilities, journalistic integrity? Um, I, I get the idea and I, and I think you're right, more free speech is better and you wanna know who the bad actors are, but is this an impossible, is this an impossible task? I mean- well, per per Perfection in it is, is absolutely impossible. 
and and you have to sort of accept that from the beginning. Yeah. Um, and and the, you know, we had this discussion when I was there around a lot of the child safety issues, um, given photographs and given that we were opening from colleges, colleges um, to high schools first, and then to the broader world. So um, the the problems that had plagued MySpace from the beginning um, around you know usually sort of younger 20-something men preying on uh, you know, girls who were 14, for instance, um, and boys who were 14, too, um, for that matter. Um, it didn't happen as much on Facebook, but we knew it was going to be a problem, and we knew that we had to explain how our approach was you know, more sophisticated than that of a wide-open network. Um, you know, now it's around you know, false information, around COVID, um, you know, there's still sexual predation issues, um, just as there are in the real world. And, and, you know, after my time at Facebook and in part because of my time at Facebook and what I saw online, um, I've, I've been very involved in the fight against sex trafficking um, in, in American world. Um, and, and after I did the 2010 attorney general race, um, re helped rewrite with a bunch of activists, um, California's anti-human trafficking laws in an uh, initiative that we call Prop 35 and, and that, that became the most successful initiative in the history of the state of California. We got, we got more votes than anything on any ballot had ever gotten um, uh, until uh, this year, the, the Biden-Harris ticket um, eclipsed our record finally in terms of most votes <laughs> on the California ballot. Um, wow. And so that's been, and then, and then Attorney General Harris and I um, uh, ended up rebuilding our relationship because uh, because she had to uh, enforce that law <laughs> and, yeah. did a, and did a good yeah. job. Um, and uh, and we had to, there were a couple of tweaks that we needed to, to make in terms of the sex offender registry um, that we eventually got through the legislature together. Um, so it, it's a, it's a it's stunning how much of this goes on online and, and you've seen, you know, the, the FBI agents who were pulled in Florida the other day were serving a warrant um, to go after one of the largest child porn sites on the dark web. Um, and wow. Bo Biden and I, when Bo was attorney general of Delaware, worked together extensively uh, you know, against child sexual exploitation. It is real. It doesn't happen in the basement of a pizza place on Capitol Hill. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the yeah. craziness that is developed around this um, it is largely crazy, but um, that doesn't mean that this is not going on and that it's not a, an unbelievably serious problem online and in the real world. Yeah. Well, kudos for you on uh, 35. Um, that made the world a better place. And yeah. and um, with regard to social media, it's, it's we know it's brought us together. And we also know that it's, it's well, I would, I would put it to you. Do you think it's making us more tribal? Uh, we, we definitely have an echo chamber. We know it may not be new. I think I saw in one of your uh, interviews that I did for research that, you know, that you could say the New York Times is an echo chamber. So that's, and, and it, yeah, it's a filter bubble. So wh what can we do about this? And or can, Eli, can we do anything about it? You know, Eli, who, who um, you know, coined the filter bubble phrase and, and who's a good friend, and I have been having this conversation for quite some time. I, I, I do think that this is not a new thing. It is amplified by social media at the end of the day. And um, the discussion about whether algorithms amplify or dampen this is one that needs to be engaged by all of the large social media companies. And, um, and I think that Facebook's engagement of the discussion has been uh, a little bit less uh, 
fulsome than I would have liked. And and I think I would like to see a lot more from the company around this. And I have, and I'm cautiously optimistic that you will see uh, more from the company uh, in in talking about how extremism is uh, is not healthy for anyone. And you know, they've done a Facebook and Twitter and a number of players have done a very good job in um, dealing with it when it comes to you know, foreign forces and terrorism recruiting and a number of things like that. Um, the the problem has come that that maybe we need to be a little bit more um, you know, uh, detection focused around some of the QAnon stuff and, and, and the other types of extremism that, that, that can often lead to that type of, uh, you know, off belief system where truly absurd things are, um, you know, taken <laughs> faith and, and, um, and, and promoted instead of, instead of tamped down by the more speech that, that, that most, you know, traditional free speech activists would talk about. Um, yeah. the, the presentation of that and the way that, that, that memes and ideas flow through the world of communications has been changed radically by social media. And so with that, yeah. um, we probably need to do a lot more thinking about how the, you know, the bad consequences, um, whether it's, you know, insurrection at the Capitol or, um, you know, or Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing or, you know, or ISIS how those things all come about and um and the 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 idea that um companies don't have any responsibility for that is wrong um but the idea that they had that they should have all responsibility for that and this is where we get into the discussion of section 230 that has been the the sort of left and right um you know coming together to say oh that's got to change and it's like well it the the principle that that you cannot be held legally liable for third-party speech is actually probably the right principle for platforms that 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 provide for you know, user-generated expression online. Um, and the craft of Section 230 that's positive is that that doesn't mean that um, no moderation is the norm. That they've actually protected uh, these sites from taking some actions in moderation. Uh, the the fight has been over you know uh, people on the right in particular. Um, worried that that they're they're not going to get the political bang for their buck um, uh, with some of their extremist rhetoric um, and 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 having that be protected as 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 you know sort of facts and and statements and and, and things like that. And then on the left, mm -hmm. there's been a disinformation, you know, a worry about disinformation in particular about science and and other um, and other you know sort of whether it's climate change or um, or uh, COVID. And COVID was a a huge opportunity for the social media companies to step forward and provide a bit of a rethinking. And, and they, they by and large did seize that. Both Twitter and Facebook have been very active with governmental figures mm -hmm. around making sure that good COVID information uh, gets out to as many people on the platforms as possible. And, and, that's, I, and that, that's one of the things that I've been engaged with um, the Facebook crew on mm -hmm. in trying to help them a bit on that. Yeah, I think that's a success. So you know, I, I'm sure the algorithm can dampen the filter bubble. Do you think the platforms are willing to tune it in that way? Or do you think I, they are tuning it in that way? I think that there's more of an understanding that um, they have to make a choice as to whether or not it amplifies or um, or tamps down extremism. And that, that no matter what choice they make, they're going to be criticized. 
And so the, they should have a substantive view of um, what kind of world they want. And, and yeah. ultimately, when you're a mass personalization platform, you end up with different views for different people. And this is where some of the mainstream media discussion, um, you know, I think goes really wrong on, on Facebook in particular. So the, you know, the New York Times regularly publishes, you know, these are the top 10 stories on Facebook, the most interacted with stories on Facebook. It's like, well, that doesn't mean that that that's what most people see on Facebook. That just means that right. there's you know somewhat of an echo chamber that that reshares these right. things largely among its own echo chamber, and that is still a problem potentially. But it's not the problem that that they're implying exists, which is you know you you move to Facebook and you're overwhelmed by right wing propaganda or something like that. And it's like that's no. that's not what happens. I mean, it's certainly not not yeah. what happens in my feed. And and you know I I no. do try to. Um, you know, still interact. I have uh, quite a number of friends who are are more on the conservative side of the ledger, and and I'm happy to continue engaging with them. And I want to see some of the stuff um, show up in that feed. I, I I don't have close relationships with folks who became Trumpers, um, but people who are close mm -hmm. to Ben Sass and and a number of the other players um, on the conservative side, mm -hmm. who you know I believe are still patriots and tried to do the best thing for the country. Um, yeah. you know, I, I continue to, they continue to show up in my feed and, and I'm happy with them. Um, yeah. So, but this so, idea so Chris, that, that, you know, Ben Shapiro and Dan Boncino and, and all these people are, you know, in, in everybody's Facebook feeds just isn't the case. Um, so yeah. we almost discussing the wrong things a good chunk of the time. Yeah. All right. So now we turn Chris to our podcast, big four questions, and this gives a, a common experience to our guests. And uh, we'll ask you these questions. And so the first one is, who is your communications crush and why? Could be a person in history, a teacher, a colleague, Bill Clinton, Sean Parker, anyone, I mean, your choice. Having had the deep pleasure of watching President Clinton up close, I mean, there, there really isn't anybody that I've seen who's better. Um, and who, you know, obviously in the, the, the hardest circumstances, um, although, I mean, uh, the 92 campaign had its, had its moments, uh, it had its near death moments repeatedly. Yep. Um, and I got to see him up close in a number of those. And then the worst parts of the administration, the impeachment and everything else came after I left. And so I was watching that more from afar, but I did see a lot of the, you know, obviously as a, and it watched it as a, as a keen political observer who knew a lot of the players, um, his, uh, ultimate dedication to kind of trying to get things done um, through all of the the you know, rigmarole and hurly burly and all the crazy stuff that politics can engender um, and also knowing that that he brought a lot of it on himself um, but mm -hmm. needed to stay focused on what he was trying to achieve um, will always uh, impress me you know immensely and you know I, I've gotten to know him better um, uh, since, you know, since he's been out of office and spent some time with him and, and just a, an extraordinary human being who stayed focused well on, you know, the communication about the things that are most important um, and, yeah. and you know, continue to be, I think that, that, that President Clinton and Secretary Clinton have been, you know, ex-political figures almost as, 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 the, as good as Jimmy Carter um, at this yep. point. Mm -hmm. Carter, yeah. obviously. Yeah. You know, has been out longer, and you know, um, has always had the, you know, the 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 mantra of the best ex-president. But I, I do think that both President and Secretary Clinton have done extraordinary things um, in their post uh, in their post uh, mm -hmm. presidential post political um, 
uh, environment. So, so yeah, so they're 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 heroes of mine, no question about it. Um, despite despite their flaws and despite sort of understanding the the the, the role that they've played in quite a number of of parts of American political life. Yeah, I think uh, like them or uh, less than like him. I was going to college in the Reagan years, and I didn't get to, you know, see that up close. But I got to see Clinton up close, and for me, I just can't think or imagine a more talented or gifted politician, someone who connected with people, understood, yeah. spoke in spoken perfect paragraphs extemporaneously, and not just in an intellectual way, but in a way that really connected with people. He spoke with emotion. He spoke with metaphors. He understood. He listened. I mean, he's just, you know, he, yeah. he he's a, a talented and gifted uh, politician. No, no question. And, one, and that's one of the reasons that he was such a target from the beginning, and why you know there was a desire to take him down in any way possible. And you know, and like like all human beings, flawed in his own ways, and and uh, you know, brought brought on a lot of the problems um, that he suffered himself, unfortunately. Yeah. All right. So, but Chris, second question. <laughs> and, and did amazing. Absolutely. Things. Absolutely. All right, Chris, second question. We're a teaching firm. We coach and teach for a living and at the, at the corporate and the individual level with obviously a focus on communication. So you, you obviously have been under the spotlight a lot in your career. Love to know as a learning opportunity for our listeners, what's your most cringeworthy communication moment, that moment that you really wish you had back and, and what you learned from it? Boy, um, so there have been a lot of times that I thought I made fatal mistakes and then found out that I didn't. That's one of the, I, if, if I had to take one thing from all of this, is that there's no such thing that's completely fatal um, in any yep. communication environment. And the most important thing is to keep going even when you think you've nice. blown something up that there, there've been times that I've given talks when I, when I was like, there's, there's a, a, a couple of speeches that I've given paid speeches that I've given sort of in the last five, maybe four or five years ago where I'm like, Oh, that just didn't come together at all. And then people have come <laughs> up to me afterwards and said, Oh, that was brilliant. And I'm like, well, yeah, no. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. The, the most important thing is to keep going, that there's nothing that you that you that you fear would be fatal. Um, you know, I, I, I've I think I've learned enough over the years that that, that the you know, the the worst landmines. I've, I don't think I've ever stepped on the worst landmines that you can imagine. Um, you know, there's nothing mm-hmm. where I've, I've, you know, gotten, you know, semi Tourette's or <laughs> or anything. Right. Like that. Sure, sure. All right, Chris, uh, the next one is, how do you stay afloat in a sea of overwhelm? In other words, in a really noisy world, how do you stay focused? That's one of the, the things that um, I think everyone struggles with now, is that, that before it used to be really hard to get access to information and storytelling and things that would be stimulating. And now, you know, again, the, you know, the supercomputer in the pocket, um, you've got it at all times. And, and you know, a lot of it for me has been, you know, thinking about how to have time that I'm not either on a device, um, you know, or, or available and that I can sit and and just think and meditate. Um, you know, I'm not a great meditator, but I, I think it, it is important to 
try <laughs> and yeah. um, and to just to to find time to uh to recharge and to um and to and to get some perspective on the things that that otherwise can seem consuming yeah that's a great one that's a great one struggle for everybody myself included so last last question chris uh, again we're a coaching firm and we also deal with a lot of young people. We, we, we see a lot of people in our corporate leadership programs, front end of their career. You've been around the block a bunch of times. So if you were coach for the day for a young person at the front end of their career, what communications advice would you have for them? How would you coach somebody in terms of how they communicate in the workplace, in life, as they're setting up the rest of their career? What's your, what's your nugget of wisdom? I think it's identify um, where you have the the least comfort and figure out how to practice it. If there's something that terrifies you, that's what you've mm -hmm. got to go do. There's a reason that it terrifies you, <laughs> whether it's, you know, yeah. sort of getting the crisp presentation done in the meeting, whether it's a large public speech, um, you know, mm -hmm. you need to, to look inside to figure out why you're so afraid of that and then figure out how to just go do it and get over it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Great advice, Chris. And and honestly, you know, this this conversation could, from our perspective, go on for a couple more hours. But uh, in 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 uh, deference to your schedule and our audience's attention span, we will uh, we will we will pause it right there, and we'll just close with a really hearty and heartfelt uh, word of gratitude to you. And it's great to be reconnected with you. And this has been fascinating. A great conversation. And uh, Really appreciate your time today. Really appreciate you joining us on the Message Makeover. Thanks so much for having me. This has been uh, this has been an excellent discussion. Uh, great. Thank you, Chris. Have a great day. All right. Thanks, guys. Well, there you go, Dan. Just as expected, an unbelievably fascinating conversation with Chris Kelly. I loved it. You know, it's not every day that we get to speak to NBA uh, owners, <laughs> franchise owners. Right. Right. I mean, maybe for you, Dean. Well, you know, I like to, I like to, I like to roll out my famous friends slowly, as you said at the beginning. Yeah. Overwhelm Jeez. you with the, the, right. the magnitude of the celebrity of my network. But uh, well, all right, we'll keep them coming. <laughs> but uh, but you know, Chris brings so much to the table, and 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 I I know very few people in my life with as varied a background as his. Uh, sports owner, Facebook, uh, you know, leader at Facebook, uh, just you know political background, just so many, so many interesting elements of his background. We could have had probably a full podcast interview on any one element yeah. of his background. And and we tried to squeeze it all in there. So, you know, so let's let's wrap this up. And and as we always do for our listeners, we like to close with our walkaway points of what we thought were the most fascinating or important comments or 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 pieces of wisdom from our guest. And and Dan, why don't I let you go first? And you know what really resonated for you in our conversation? Yeah, uh, when he was talking about the platform, uh, Facebook, and when he went there, it, we just have to realize how relatively new this powerful new communications platform is. There wasn't even a news feed, he said, on Facebook until 2007. Right. And you know, I was thinking, oh, it feels like a lifetime that we've been living with Facebook and the Facebook uh, newsfeed. And then I was thinking about, okay, well, that's this form of communicating when social media is only 14 years old. 
right. you know that 14 is a kind of an awkward age for all of us, Dean. So, <laughs> you know, we're gonna we're gonna have to deal with the teenager here. Um, it's a pretty the teenager is about six four, right? Yes. But and walking around the house, but um, so that's one thing. And the second thing was, okay, we've got this tension between freedom of speech and tamping down extreme ex extremist speech. Yes. And it's not new, but it's we've entered a new phase of this. And I think this is going to be with us for the next, I don't know, five to 10 years. We're going to be struggling with this for a while. Yes. That, that was two. And then finally, I loved his advice for new people new to their career and take on what terrifies you because there's power in that. And there's a quote that I love. It's a Joseph Campbell quote. And it's the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. And I keep that fairly close at hand because it's something that I need a reminder to try to crash through the terror barrier on a regular basis. Yeah. Those are, those are my three. Great, great ones. Great ones. Uh, I, I agree with all three of those. Those resonated for me as well. I'll add, I'll add two to the list. Uh, I, we talk a lot about echo chambers and, and we talk a lot about how social media has created echo chambers and you can curate your news feed and, and eliminate anything you don't want to read and just focus on what you do want to read. And Chris had a slightly different take on that. His take is that social media has not created echo chambers, that they've been around for a really long time. And you could you could pick which newspaper you read. You know, yeah. you, you yeah. didn't prior to the, the, the arrival of social media didn't mean that we were all consuming you know, all forms of news from all perspectives. So, so, so his point that there have always been echo chambers, I think is an important level set for all of us, but, but certainly the arrival of social media has made them louder and faster. Yeah, accelerated it. It's massively accelerated it. So, so you know, I, I think it's important that we not act like this is totally new, but also not shy away from the fact that the speed is new. And, yeah. and, and that we have to, you know, the, the, the quicker that a, a sound can travel around the world, you know, the, the, the more impact it can have. And then the second one was one of the final things that he said in his advice to, or I you know it was actually his response to his question about his biggest, you know, mistake as a communicator. And, and I loved his comment about realizing that nothing is actually, or very few things are actually fatal. And, and he talked about, you know, there were times where he said things and he thought that they didn't work or he said completely the wrong thing or really regretted it. And I think he was making soft reference to some of his political experiences, but then realizing afterwards that it didn't land in the way that he feared that it did. And it certainly wasn't fatal if you own it and you and you and you address it, that, that you can you can you, you can resuscitate almost anything. And I think I think that's important not to say that mistakes are OK. I mean, we all want to try and say the right thing as often as possible, but realizing that, hey, we all make mistakes and if you own it and, 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 and address it, that you can that you can resolve almost anything. I thought that yeah, was really powerful too. There's a Churchill quote around that and the benefit while you were talking, I looked it up. So success is not final, failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. Love it, yeah. love it. Thank you, Winston. Yeah. The, the, the most quotable should, leader of all time. We should have him on sometime. We should, we should all start working on that. <laughs> Dean, did he go to Georgetown? He's <laughs> a classmate of yours? Probably, right? I wish. I wish. Yeah. Anyway, uh, this has been great, Dan. This has been great and wonderful conversation with Chris. And uh, but we, I think we've taken enough of our of our listeners' time. So let's uh, let's let's wrap this one up. True that. 
Well, that does it for this episode of the Message Makeover Podcast. For Dan Cooney, all our colleagues at the Latimer Group, and our podcast partners at Company Cubed, thanks for listening. Until next time. The Message Makeover Podcast is brought to you by the Latimer Group, the experts in persuasive communication, online at thelatimergroup.com. And by the Cooney Company, the experts in business connection, online at thecooneycompany.com. And you can find the entire Message Makeover library on SoundCloud or wherever you download podcasts.